The Word of God teaches us from beginning to end that the man Christ Jesus is the Savior of the world. When the Samaritans had their interaction with Jesus in John 4, remember the woman from the well had gone to tell them about the man who had told her all that she had ever done, and then they had their own experience of him, and they said, We have heard for ourselves, John 4 42, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And then the Apostle John would later write in his epistle, 1 John 4 14, the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world. Now, that truth, rightfully so, would would maybe stir up a question. Why does the world need to be saved? And again, the Bible answers the question very clearly. Because of sin. Sin has entered the world. And death has entered the world through sin. The whole creation, Paul tells us, groans because of sin. All men are born enslaved to sin. And so sin causes the entire created order, and especially mankind who are its chief purveyors, to be forced away from God, to stand far off from God. Sin makes the whole world, as it were, a stench in the nostrils of God. But when Christ Jesus came into the world, John the Baptist said of Him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ Jesus is the Savior of the world. Why does the world need to be saved? Because of sin. Christ Jesus takes away the sin and and thus is the Savior of the world. He alone has come to remedy the problem created by man's sin. If we were there, if we could have watched Him as He suffered the agonies of the cross, He was enduring the penalty for sin so that through Him the blessing, which is the remission of sins, the taking away of sins, would be given to us. He takes our sins away, removes them from us, removes the condemnation through remission and is therefore our Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. There's no salvation outside of Christ because there's no remission of sins outside of the bleeding and dying of Christ, the Son of God. And so when we we come to mankind, we could say then, again, according to Scripture, only those who've had their sins forgiven by this Christ are the subjects of this salvation. And this is why Paul narrows the scope of of salvation in Ephesians 5 when he says Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. The Savior of the church. Those who have partaken in this blessing of the remission of sins. The church is in the world and He saves His people out of the world. But the Bible still says He's the Savior of the world. So we we would, would come back full circle and ask, well, is there any sense in which we could say that Christ acts as Savior of the world with regard to the rest of mankind, those who do not partake in the remission of sins, those who do not and are not partakers of His atoning work? And the answer is yes. He rids the earth of them. And that's a part of His saving work. He saves the world by wiping it clean of all of the residue of sin. As Savior of the world, Christ not only ransoms His church, 
but He will return to judge the enemies. And it's that return in judgment which is the subject of our thoughts again today. Last week we saw Him return to rescue His people. And now we see that He will execute judgment upon His enemies. But they're not two separate works. It's all a part of one complete work of the, the Savior of the world. Herman Bovink, making this connection, he says, and this is a quote, "...the return of Christ in judgment is not an arbitrary addition that can be isolated from His preceding work as viewed by itself. It is a necessary and indispensable component of that work, that previous work. It brings that work to completion and crowns it." He says, "...it is the last and highest step in the state of His exaltation." End quote. So there is this, if we think biblically, there is sort of this process of exaltation that Christ has undergone, at least in, in, a, in a, a way of manifestation. There was a glory which befell the Son of God when He took upon Himself the nature of a man without conversion, composition, or confusion. That there's a glory there manifested in the mystery of mysteries that God the Word became God the man and continued to be and continues to be to this very day no less God than He was when He hung the stars. That's, that's a glory. It was, it was a humbling for Him and yet a glory that we can't even explain. And then there was a glory which attached itself to Christ when He endured the wrath of the Father in the place of sinners. As we say, on the cross, every divine attribute perfectly and fully displayed in one moment on Golgotha. Another manifest glory. And then there's another layer of glory added when He's raised from the dead, never to die again, the first fruits of the new creation. And then there's another layer of glory added when He, the God-man, man-God, ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high where He now sits enthroned, ruling in glory and honor. It's glory upon glory upon glory upon glory. And then there's still yet one more, to use Bovink's language, one more higher step in the exaltation of the Son of God. And that's going to be when He comes in power in the glory of His Father to execute judgment upon the earth and to be glorified in all of His saints. It's not a bunch of separate pieces of work. It's all one work. All of it directed to display the manifold wisdom of God as He exalts the Son. It's all one piece. One saving work. It's all connected. And Christ hints to this, and Scripture alludes to this, when He began His earthly ministry, He preached from Isaiah 61, which reads, "...the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me." to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says that at that point, He stopped and rolled it up and handed it back. But if we were to get that scroll back and continue to read from Isaiah 61, it would say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. In the language of the prophet with the illusion of Christ, the prophet taking all of this work and putting it in one piece, Christ comes to, to unpack it, to sort of divvy it out, 
He's saying this is one work. I've come to do one work. The first coming of Christ in His saving work. The second coming of Christ to execute vengeance and comfort those who mourn. In John 3, Christ says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. His first coming was for salvation, of preaching good news, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty, opening the prison. His second coming is going to be no less important to His role as Savior. It's not a secondary work. His second coming will be to execute vengeance upon the wicked and comfort the mourning. And it's in, in this sense that eschatology is essentially Christology. It's all focused in the person and the work of Christ as God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit contrived from eternity a plan that would elevate the Christ, the Son, in, in the eyes and the hearts and the minds of every creature. So when, we, when it comes to the salvation of the world, the salvation of sinners, the exaltation of Christ at His second coming, we could then say, well, one's eternal destiny is rooted in their relationship to Jesus Christ because the eternal destiny of everything is rooted in its relationship to Jesus Christ. And the passage that we're looking at today proves that very point. It centers on Christ, and one's destiny is rooted in their relationship to Him. We have in these verses a description of the final court scene of the Bible, the final judgment. And again, from beginning to end, we see that all things center upon Christ. We see first the judgment seat is occupied by Christ. The defendants are brought before Christ. The evidence is presented to Christ and the punishment is executed by Christ. So that will be our outline as we walk through these verses. Number one, the judgment seat is occupied by Christ. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. John sees a great white throne, or bright. The, the description of this color is like light. A translucent, glowing, bright, white light, which always reminds us of God who dwells in unapproachable light. The God in whom there is no darkness. Now the, the idea of a throne, as we said Two weeks ago, almost exclusively in the Revelation, is a reference to a, a heavenly throne unless otherwise denoted. Now here we have a singular heavenly throne. I saw a great white throne. This throne stands alone. It's singular in heaven. It's not like the other thrones. We've seen the thrones of the 24 elders, but here we see a great white throne. A throne, as you know, is a symbol of royal power and authority. A throne is a seat, and this one is seated on it, which reminds us of God's serene and sovereign rule over the universe. Very often you'll hear men, when they read through Revelation, they might be preaching Revelation 4 or maybe here, and they'll talk about the, the heavenly throne room as the command center of heaven. But in this heavenly throne room, there are no buttons or buzzers or, or alarms or whistles. There's just a throne because God doesn't need any of those things. He simply sits serenely, sovereignly ruling from the heavens. And this is what John is seeing, a great white throne. 
In chapter 1, verse 4, this throne was occupied by Him who is and who was and who is to come, which we know is the eternal God. Chapter 3, verse 24, the throne, or 21, the throne was shared by the Father and the victorious Christ. All of chapter 4 is centered around the throne of God. And then in chapter 5, we saw the Lamb, as it were, approaching the throne. The Lamb standing as though it had been slain before the throne. In chapter 6, men are crying out for the rocks to kill them, to hide them from the wrath of God seated upon His throne and from the Lamb. In chapter 7, verse 9, saints were worshiping before the throne and before the Lamb. In chapter 7, verse 17, the Lamb is now in the midst of the throne. And then in chapter 22, as we'll see, it's referred to as the throne of God and of the Lamb. And we've said before, it seems that you could almost trace this throughout the Revelation. God seated upon His throne and very slowly in these images, the Lamb moves closer and closer and closer until we see He is the one occupying the throne. But we might want to ask, who's occupying the throne? Is it God? Is it the Father? Is it Christ the Lamb? Jesus says in John 5.22, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Judgment given to the Son because He is the Son of Man. Who's on the throne? Is it God? Is it the Father? Is it Christ the Lamb? Yes. God Himself is ruler and judge of all. And the Father has handed over the authority to judge and execute judgment to the Son in light of the Son's accomplished mediation. Anytime you see a reference to the Son of Man, it's not talking about God the Son ontologically. Christ is not an ontological term. It's not talking about the being of God or God the Word. It's talking about His work as mediator, His incarnate mediatorial work for His people. So in light of, because He is the Son of Man, Because Jesus has already finished the initial work of the salvation of the world and making atonement for the sins of His people in that world, He and He alone has been exalted to the position to bring to pass the fullness of that work which will be the glorifying of His people and the execution of final judgment upon His enemies. He began the work as mediator. He will finish the work as mediator. He saves those who are His and He vanquishes and destroys those who are not His. In other words, God judges through the Son, the Lamb. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's Christ who will judge. Then we see the frightening countenance of Him who occupies the throne. It says in verse 11, From His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. The Lamb that we once saw standing as though it had been slain now takes the place of judge. And it says earth and sky, literally earth and heaven, which is important because we're going to read about heaven and earth in chapter 21. Earth and heaven flee from Him. They run away from Him. They get away from Him. And there's no place found for them. This is the way 
the Revelation describes what we typically refer to as the dissolution of the created elements. In Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. In Revelation 20, the heavens and the earth run from Him, which is contrary to the way it originally was. In the Garden of Eden, God came down upon His holy mountain in communion with God. After the fall, God came down on Mount Sinai to deliver His law, and the, the mountain trembled at His presence. The created elements there appeared as if they were to buckle under the manifestation of that awful scene when God wraps the mountain in smoke and thunder and fire and lightning. But here, this is a scene far more terrifying than Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, the people backed up. They stood far off and they said, Moses, you go talk to Him. But here, heaven and earth... Run from Him. The created elements run away from Him. In chapter 6, again, men cried out in horror at His appearing, wishing to die, wishing that no place would be found for them. We don't want to be here in His presence. Here, the very heavens and earth disperse at His appearing. And so we're given here another picture of Jesus Christ, which is really very different than and the one we often have in our minds, the one that is very often pervaded by broader evangelicalism, by our culture, believer and unbeliever alike, the way that people typically imagine Jesus to be. This is a very different picture on this day. And that the Scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is not a new Jesus. This is the same old Jesus. The same Christ who beckons men to come to Him and to take His yoke upon them and to learn from Him because He is gentle and lowly in heart. The same Jesus who stood as a lamb who had been slain, tender, meek, approachable, is going to return as the most horrifying enemy this world has ever seen. All of the temporal acts of God's judgment that we see in Scripture and even in our own day will pale in comparison to this day. We read the story of Adam eating of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden and all of his race is plummeted into curse. And we, in the back of our minds, we tend to think that just seems a little extreme. Mankind are building a tower at Babel. And God disperses them across the face of the earth. That just seems a little extreme. God sends a flood to wipe out every breathing thing on the planet except for eight souls. And we think, that just seems a little extreme. The earth opens up and swallows those who followed Korah in his rebellion. And we think, them and their families, that just seems a little extreme. Achan is stoned and his family. And we think, that just doesn't seem right. The immediate deaths of men like Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah, Ananias and Sapphira, we think, that just seems a little extreme. And yet all of those things are just shadows of this. Shadows of His coming in judgment. To, to use the biblical language, those are but the outskirts of the ways, of the judgments of God. The Good Shepherd is going to come with rod in hand, prepared to strike down the nations like a potter's vessel. Shatter them in pieces. The bow that's been drawn and aimed at evil men is going to be on this day released. As it's been said before, right now God stands, or Christ stands between God and men with one hand beckoning sinners and with the other hand holding back God's wrath. But on this day, He drops both hands. No more beckoning. 
No more patience, no more mercy, no more waiting. The very creation itself is going to run and hide from Christ upon His judgment throne. Number two, we see the defendants are brought before Christ in this court scene. In verse 12, it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. In verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them. And so we see that this day of judgment, first, is going to be universal in scope. Universal. All men, great and small, Christians and non-Christians, poor and rich, slave and free, male, female, young, old, universal. Nobody escapes the final judgment. Nobody gets out. Nobody gets a pass. As Paul says in Romans 14, 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And there he includes himself with all of the saints and all mankind. We're all going to give an account. It's universal. We also see here what the Bible teaches that this is one general resurrection of all people. Daniel 12.2 says that many of those who, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, believers, and some to shame and everlasting contempt, unbelievers. One resurrection. Acts 24, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the, by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. One singular resurrection. Just are raised. Unjust are raised. Not two different resurrections, but one universal resurrection on one final day of judgment. Christ describes this day when He says in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Believers on the right, unbelievers on the left. One judgment, one resurrection, one division. It's universal. All men are going to be brought before the judge of all the earth. He's not going to send out invitations. He's just going to bring them. There's not going to be any court-ordered subpoenas that you receive and then determine, I will answer this and go. No, it won't be like that. The judge is not going to sit and wait for men to appear in court. As it is often in our day, the, the judge will read out the name of the next one in line on the docket. Maybe, maybe he reads it twice, maybe he re reads it three times, gives them an opportunity to say, I'm here for my case. And if they're not there, they mark it down and they move on. It won't happen on the final judgment day. He's not going to sit and wait for men to appear. He will bring them and they will be brought. They will be gathered. Those who have loved His appearing will be placed on His right hand. Those who have rejected Him will be placed on His left hand. This is important. As we've said when we looked at it in Matthew, we've seen it before in this book. This is not going to be the day which decides the eternal destiny of men. That's already decided. That's being played out now. That's being manifested in your life. 
What's happening on this day is that Christ gets the opportunity before all men to show that He Himself is the judge and that they must and will answer to Him. It's His day. And so the defendants are going to be brought before Christ. They will answer to Him. Thirdly, the evidence will be presented to Christ. In any criminal court case, evidence, if there is any, is presented. But remember that the evidence is not the crime. Men are not judged simply because evidence has been presented. The evidence is brought forth and weighed to support what has been uh, accused, what has taken place or what has not taken place. In other words, the evidence simply proves that the crime has taken place, has been committed or has not been committed. So here we read of the evidence as it's produced. In verse 12, books were opened. What was written in these books? It says, written in the books according to what they had done. In verse 13, what they had done. What is in these books? It is the record of what men have done. Records kept in these books of what men had done, their deeds. Every living person will be judged on this day according to his deeds, what he has done. The deeds of every living person have been kept on record, on file, by God the Almighty for this day. So not only is this judgment universal, all men will come, but it's also very practical. In other words, according to our practices, according to actual deeds. Paul speaks of in Romans 2, the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed... He will render to each one according to His works. According to, in direct relation to your works. Each one rendered according to His works, His deeds. We also see that this judgment is individual and personal. Romans 14, 12 again. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The word account there is logos, as is used in John 1. A word of testimony. So then, each of us will give a word of testimony for himself. Not for somebody else, for himself. It's an individual, personal judgment. Your deeds will be brought forth and you and you alone will give testimony of your deeds before God. You will not give a testimony to the deeds of somebody else. And nobody else will give a testimony to your deeds. There won't be any other witnesses brought in because there are none needed. God has kept the record of your deeds. You will testify to what God brings forth. You will answer to Christ for your actions. Now at the present time in our world, we very often take comfort in the collective we divide ourselves up into groups or classes or clubs, various communal entities, and we find comfort and strength in numbers. To be especially relevant, 
This is the fundamental, fundamental error of, the, of a critical theory and more popular critical race theory. They divide up society into classes of people and attribute problems to classes of people. Now some would say the problem with critical theory and critical race theory is that it divides people up. No, that's not the problem. The problem with critical race theory is that it groups people together. On this day, God's going to say, no groups. Divide up sheep and goats. And every man will answer for his deeds. But in these theories, the whole class is guilty of class sins. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that each man is a sinner and is guilty of his own sins and will answer for his own deeds. The problem is not the rich versus the poor. The problem is not whites versus blacks. The problem is not the culture versus Christians. The problem is the sin in the heart of each individual human being. And on Judgment Day, that truth, which is true now, the Bible teaches it now, it is the way things are now, but on Judgment Day, it's going to be manifested for all to see. Men reject it now. God's going to show, I was looking at you, your deeds, individual, personal sins. The white community is not going to give an account for their sins. The black community for their sins. The rich community for their sins. The poor, no. On that day, every man-made class or subgroup will be broken down into its least common denominator, the individual person. Which, by the way, is how God deals with people now. On that day, there will be no husband and wife. The man you will answer for yourself. Woman for yourself. On that day, there will be no parent and child. Every child will stand alone. On that day, there will be no siblings. Brother, you will stand for yourself. Sister, you'll stand for yourself. There will be no co-workers, club members, crewmates who answer for you. Nobody's got your back and you will have nobody else's back. You'll stand alone. We won't be called up by citizenship. We won't be called up by nationality. There will be no political parties. You won't even be able to say, well, I'm a member of that church. Individual. Personal. Practical, universal judgment. We also know, because it's God who's kept the record of these deeds, that this judgment is going to be thorough. Thorough. 2 Corinthians 5.10, again, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All deeds will be brought to bear. Good deeds and evil deeds. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that the Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. It will be a very impartial judgment. He will not set aside some deeds because He says, well, I won't mention that because that's kind of embarrassing and, and I don't want to put you through that. I don't want you to have to rehash that. Christ even says... I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Matthew 12, 36. Not, not just deeds. Words. Every careless word. Hebrews 4 tells us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God will judge thoughts and intentions, not just deeds, not just words, but thoughts and intentions. 
Each one of us is going to stand and give a practical, personal, thorough account for every deed done in the body. Well, you've done this. Well, yeah, I've done that, but what I meant was, nope, sorry, here's your intentions that went along with that. Well, you said that. I, I did say that, but what I meant was, sorry, I got your intentions right here. He's going to lay it all out. We're going to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ who is God over all for every word, every thought, every intention, every deed. We're not going to give an account to men who could possibly be deceived. We're not going to give an account to men who are dependent upon our testimony to know the facts. God's not going to say, well, I just want to get your side of the story. No, He's going to tell you what your side of the story is and was and has been. There will be no opportunity to alter the truth by what you say or steer the judgment. It's one thing to be able to ask to explain your side of the story. The details are foggy. We're trying to get the story straight. Could you tell us what you saw? That's one thing. That's not what's going to happen on this day. It's another thing to answer for the exact details as recorded by God with no recourse for alteration. He's going to say, this is what you did, this is what you said, and this is what you meant and intended when you said it and did it. Speak. Answer. Down the line. Everyone. Every person. Some will give an account on that day for the murder of the unborn, adultery, idolatry, rank paganism, drug abuse, theft, pornography addiction, lies and disobedience to parents, bitterness, pride, self-worship, hypocrisy, laziness. That's just in this room. Imagine how your deeds are going to compare with the deeds of the lost when the books are opened. Think about it. Do you not know good, moral, lost people? Are there not religions in the world that have so strictly and severely restrained external corruptions that the people look outwardly moral and good and they would never think twice about committing some of the sins that we have committed? Their deeds will be recorded. Your deeds will be recorded. How is this going to pan out when the books are open? Is there anybody in this room that finds a place to glory on that day when these books are opened up? Not one. Not one. There'll be no glorying in the evidence that's presented to Christ. I would suggest, if anybody's like me, that the very thought of this day is is probably one of those thoughts that makes the head of the Christian hang lower than, than any other thought. Number four, the punishment will be executed by Christ. Verses 14 and 15, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now we met death and Hades back in chapter 1. And so it would make sense in the layout of the book that death and Hades are the last enemies to be destroyed. But prior to that, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The second death is here described. The second death is final, 
eternal, conscious, living death. Conscious, eternal torment and separation from God. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Conscious, eternal torment away from the presence of God. Notice that it does not say, if anyone's deeds are found to be sinful in nature, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Because remember, the deeds are merely evidence of what is the ultimate crime. Your deeds will be brought forth to support what was your spiritual state. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Now, there are a lot of things that we could tease out, theological things that we could tease out here, but I think one of the most important truths is really more implicit than explicit. The deeds recorded in the books were brought forward to support the final condemnation of the wicked, but for the righteous, whose deeds were also recorded in those same books, back up to verse 12, another book was opened which is the book of life. This scene here is essentially the contrast of the books versus the book. Now where have we seen this book before, the book of life? We've seen it back in chapter 3, verse 15. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. See, the names in this book are the names of the conquerors. And the names in this book are the names confessed by Christ to His Father, before the Father. Here's the picture. It's as if the deeds recorded in the books are brought forth and testimony is given. Every man giving an account of himself to God. Every man answering for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. Universal, thorough, practical, individual. And then the Lord Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, answers our testimony with His own testimony. And He confesses our names before His Father. These names we saw in chapter 13 and, verse 7, and, and chapter 17, these names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Chapter 21, we'll see that only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the heavenly city. We see this, this overarching picture of the Lamb's book of life. Names written before the foundation of the world. And the names held out and blessed in the eternal state. So what is this book? This book is the record of the names of the elect of God. Written before the foundation of the world. This book is the Lamb's book. Given to Him from before the foundation of the world. Christ knew from the foundation of the world the very names of those for whom He would come and lay down His life. Remember He prayed, Yours they were. You gave them to Me. Father of all that You've given Me, I've lost none. It's as if the Father had a book. The election of grace. The people. He said, Son, here are their names. He took the book. These are the ones I will ransom. I will save. He knew our Names and deeds before as yet there were any of them. And Christ entered into a covenant of everlasting 
Redemption, to ransom specific people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation whose names are recorded in this book. Now in this passage it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, what does that imply? That those names that are written are not thrown into the lake of fire. The names that are written are those who partook in the first resurrection. We saw in in verse 6. And so we have on Judgment Day again the story of the books versus the book. The deeds that we have committed in the flesh laid over against the election of grace and Christ's atoning work. Notice it doesn't say that there are any deeds recorded in the Lamb's book. Only names. The scene here is one which reiterates the grand story of the Bible, namely that there is one Savior. The Bible from start to finish testifies to the solitariness of God in the salvation of sinners. Deeds will be brought forward to testify to God's justice in Christ. Remember, it's His day, not ours. It's His. Either Christ will confess that name, showing that justice has already been rendered as it was poured out in His own body on the tree. Or Christ will deny that name and their deeds will be brought forth to prove that their eternal condemnation is just. The perfect justice of God in Christ Jesus will be on that day ultimately, finally displayed for all to see. And when this day is complete, we will say, nothing of our own deeds, we'll say, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It will resound to His glory, manifested in Christ. It was God's free love which led to His unconditional election of His people, which sent forth Christ to make a definite atonement for the sins of His people, whose deeds, when recorded, were just as vile as any. As we just read of the story of David, just as vile as any. The sins I've committed in this room, just as vile as the sins of any sins committed in any other room. We very often use the phrase, or maybe you've heard the phrase, judgment day honesty. It's because we recognize on this day, there's not going to be any wavering or any, any deception. We look to the future, judgment day honesty. But again, the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changed, nor will He change on that day. On that day, He's not going to become more thorough. He's not going to be more severe. He's not going to be more judge on that day than He is now. That day will merely be the execution of His judgment. But your life right now is already bagging up the evidence that's going to be presented on that day. And so if you're a Christian, every day should be a miniature of judgment day. Every day. Dealing with Judgment Day honesty about ourselves and about our sin. We should be making an honest dealing with our sin. Individual, thorough dealings with sin. Honest evaluations of sin. How futile is it to deceive ourselves when we know He sees all. He records all, every intention, every word, every motivation. It's already written down. As a Christian... Start dealing with individual sins individually. 
if you don't already. We are often quick to admit, I know I'm a sinner. Well, what does that imply except there are other sinners and I am just one of these sinners and, and that's no specific sin's name. I'm just a sinner. Congratulations. And very often we, get the, we begin to live like this is how a Christian deals with sin. In public, I'm a sinner. In private, God forgive me of my sins. That's not how God deals with sins. Why would we deal with our sins any different than God does? We deal in these vague generalities. Forgive me of my sins. If Christ is in you, then where there is true Holy Spirit wrought war against sin, it will be dealt with as Christ deals with sin. Not as lost men deal with sin. It will be be dealt with personally and individually because that's how He deals with sin. He does it now, He'll do it then. He's not going to change. Very often we fool ourselves. I've confessed, I've repented, I've moved on. No, you haven't. You've not, because you haven't dealt with it the way Christ dealt with it. Or we could say maybe you've dealt with your sins, but that doesn't mean amount to a hill of beans in in the court of God. That's not how He deals with sins. Study your own individual sins to see what God's Word says about specifics. Confess your own individual sins, admitting personal guilt for specific things. Lord, yesterday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I thought this, and that was wicked. Forgive me of that sin. Deal with it personally. Turn from specific sins, and then bear specific fruit in keeping with specific repentance and righteousness. Not just, well, I'm a sinner and I'm going to try to do better vaguely. I sinned here, this is my sin, and here's exactly how I'm walking out in righteousness proving I've truly repented. Act today as we know He is today. Don't be a practical atheist that says, well, I know He's up there. I just do everything different than He does and and it's alright. That's denying the existence of Christ Himself. But perhaps you're not a Christian. You hear all of this and you, you would say, well... My deeds are too awful. That's correct. That's why another book has to be opened up. Because our deeds are wicked. And your eternal destiny is rooted in your relationship to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can know today what will happen on that day. You can already know. You can have that judgment day, that that already but not yet judgment day. It's a matter of union with Christ which comes by faith. You must deal right now as an individual sinner. Forget about everyone else. Act like there's no one else around. That's how God's going to deal with sins. He's not going to ask anybody else their opinion on your condition. Forget about everybody else. Have your judgment day today. Enter His court in full agreement with Him that your deeds hang over your head as a weight of sin the size of the earth itself, pressing you down into an, an, a, an eternity of hell and you can't do anything to lift it. You can't move it. You can't get out from under it. All that you do c- continues to just heap weight upon weight. Go to Him and confess that. Confess your sins. Admit your guilt. 
Admit your inability to save yourself and fling yourself upon Christ. It's His book that counts at the end of the day. You say, well, I just don't know if Christ will save me because my deeds are just too bad. As long as you think that way, you will never be saved. Because what you're saying is, my sins are more sinful than Christ is righteous. You've never seen Him. You've never looked at Him. You think your ability to sin is greater than Christ's ability to save. It's because you've never looked at Him. All you've got to do is look at Him one time and you'll see His righteousness outweighs your sins. His power outweighs your ability to sin. You've not looked at Him. You're looking at yourself. You're looking at your deeds. You're reading what's going to be in those books. Your eternal destiny depends on your relationship to Christ. John said the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If He can save a world of sinners, He can save one sinner. Your sins are no match for Christ. So mighty is the power of Christ's work and intercession so pleasing to the Father that on the judgment day, all He has to do is confess your name. And that settles it. Settles the score. You were granted entrance into the eternal kingdom of heaven because He said your name. That's power. That's power in the heavens. That's authority. You don't have that authority. He has it. All of those who come to the Father through Christ are eternally, everlastingly, mightily mightily saved. Because He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what He does. That's who He is. That's His job description. That's His nature to remove sins. But you've got to deal now. When this day comes, everything I've said you'll bear witness to. You'll know it's true when this day comes. But you won't be able to do anything about it. Let's pray.